that when a company comes to us with a particular material flow or with a product, we give an identity to that stream or to that object. Because we see that waste is really a material without an identity. Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. Welcome to episode 32, and I'm recording this on Friday the 17th of July 2020. I'm looking out of the window onto a sedum roof, which is now in flower and has lots of bees and other pollinating insects hovering around it. It's a nice distraction from my computer screen. In today's episode, we're talking to Christian van Maren of Excess Materials Exchange, based in the Netherlands. Excess Materials Exchange describes itself as a dating site for secondary materials and waste. There's a great video on the website showing co-founder Mikea Amy Darman's TEDx talk from 2020. It's an excellent introduction, both to the circular economy and to how Excess Materials Exchange works. Matchmaking between those who have materials and those who need them. I've put the link to that video in the show notes. We talk about Christian's background working for Shell and how he switched from corporate life to being an entrepreneur. Christian believes the circular economy is one of the fastest and cheapest ways to achieve the Paris climate goals. And we hear how Excess Materials Exchange helps customers measure the value of their exchange options in financial, environmental and social impacts. Their analysis shows exchange is better for your profits as well as our planet, with material flows typically increasing by 110% in financial value and ecological footprints reducing by an average of 60%. Christian tells us about the kinds of companies and materials they match up, using a combination of blockchain and artificial intelligence and how they actively match supply and demand for materials to ensure high-value reuse. Today we're talking to Christian van Maren, co-founder of Excess Materials Exchange, based in the Netherlands. Excess Materials Exchange is saving the planet by running a dating site, which at first sounds improbable and then sounds intriguing. Christian describes himself as a chronic optimist, always looking at possibilities to achieve the seemingly unattainable. He's driven by making the world inclusive and circular, and is convinced that the circular economy plays a paramount role in the energy climate challenge, whilst delivering sound business results. Christian, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you very much, Catherine, and thanks for that introduction. I notice your career includes working for Shell, the global energy company, so before we get into the how and find out about Excess Materials Exchange, I'm curious about the why. 
what's at the at the root of your drive to make the world more circular? That's a very good question, and maybe also a bit odd that I used to work for Shell and now have a sort of a company in the circular economy domain. But the the story is actually a bit stranger because I used I started off studying aerospace engineering, but found that I'm not the best of engineers, and I also noticed that maybe my own personal uh, how would you say that um, effect in the aerospace industry was going to be quite uh, limited. And I want to make, I, I guess I was always intrinsically motivated to make an impact, a positive impact. And I realized while I was studying that perhaps the energy industry is one of the industries is going to have the biggest impact on our future. I thought back then, maybe a hundred years, but as it turns out, it could be much longer, much, much more significant. So I started working for Shell with the naive ambition, as you are a young professional, to see if I could change the uh, the company from the inside out. And I think I worked for them for about six years. And I have to say, I'm quite satisfied with what I was able to do. I became the uh, uh, the chairman of, uh, of the young professional organization. So I was able to um, influence some of the young future leaders of Shell. Hopefully they haven't forgotten about that as they are moving on in their career. Uh, and in the last role that I had, I was managing the natural capital and green infrastructure program for North and South America based in Houston. And I was doing projects where we were building oyster reefs, mangrove forests, and wetlands, which was a really cool role. Um, still maybe a bit weird why Shell was doing that. I mean, they were doing that really not just to make things right, but really to see if, if they could do business in a very different way, really sort of working with nature as opposed to protecting themselves from nature. And it was also through that work, as I was working with a lot of NGOs in the US, that I got acquainted with the uh, circular economy and realized that the circular economy may be one of the fastest and cheapest ways to reach the uh, Paris Climate Agreement targets. So when, I think it was in 2015 and 20 or 2016, when the oil price took uh, a nosedive, uh, Shell decided to cut back on the program, which I also thought was a nice moment to uh, leave the company, uh, leave also a bit of the company politics, because I thought they were a bit frustrating at the time, and be more directly involved in, um, in sustainability. It was also at that time that uh, I met Micah, my co-founder, through an organization called the uh, Young Club of Rome, I moved back to Europe, and that's when we started the uh, the Access Materials Exchange. Great stuff. So, yeah, that, that's um, inspiring. That even before joining Shell, you know, you wanted to try and change the world. And I think, you know, having had a uh, a corporate career myself, working for big companies like Tesco, Kellogg, uh, DHL, you can see an awful lot of of possibilities from being able to make sustainable changes but trying to get momentum behind things and and trying to get other people to move away from business as usual is um uh more difficult than it than it might first appear so let's move on to the to the how of the excess materials exchange how does it work from the customer's point of view tell it tell us a bit about the um you know the business model and then what it looks like when a client gets engaged. Sure. So the way that we work is is basically threefold. 
what we do is that when a company comes to us with a particular material flow or with a product, we give an identity to that stream or to that object. Because we see that waste is really a material without an identity. And by giving it back that identity using something that we call the resources passport, it then gets almost by having that identity value again. And next to the identity, we add intelligence to that. And we do that through a host of uh, artificial intelligence tools that we're building. And we're combining that with our own intelligence, which is not so artificial. And that is sort of the engine behind our matchmaking process. And next to the intelligence, we use an integrated approach. We help our clients really from the start till the end with the matchmaking as much as we can, but as also as much as the client needs. So if it's like a large company that we work with, they probably want to use their own logistical service provider or their own legal advisors. But if they don't have that because they're, you know, maybe a bit of a smaller organization, we can help with that as well because in our network, we have specialized uh, you know, legal advisors or logistical service providers that can help them, uh, you know, with, with the whole transaction. And mm. next to that, and also I would say part of that integral approach is that we express the, um, the value of the products and the, and the streams that we process in a financial way. So we have tools that help us to quantify the financial value of these, um, of these particular streams. But we also give it an environmental value. Together with Ernst & Young, we've developed this methodology, or really we've slightly tweaked the methodology that they have that expresses the environmental impact that you can save with the matches on our platform using uh, EcoCost. So you basically express the um, sort of the cleanup cost that you save future generations from having to clean up the sort of the mess that we normally create today in EcoCost. And that we find really helps convince the, the people that we work with in organizations, which is often the innovation department or the sustainability department, to convince internal stakeholders that are normally more used to speaking in terms of money, like the CFO or operational managers. And we find that that whole integral approach of giving waste an identity by using AI in the matchmaking process, which really reduces the cost of transaction, and combining it with that integral approach helps make it easy for the clients to match these these material flows. So in terms of the values, are you looking just at the potential resale value for it going into different streams? Um, you know, I was looking at the example from on your website of the, um, uh, the rail track um, and that that could go, say, into fencing or maybe into construction beams which would really increase the value so is it just the value of the what uh, the resale value of the waste or are you helping them look at the costs of disposing of the waste now um you know the negative value that they avoid well actually it's a good question we look at both on the one hand we compare the current end of life situation you know which in the case of railroad mm -hmm. tracks is it's not that negative because it's sold for scrap value. Mm -hmm. Oh, in this case, and I, I love this case, one of my favorite cases, to be honest, we found that the value as a construction beam is far higher. But that's just the financial value. What we also calculate is the environmental cost currently of the end-of-life uh, situation, which in this case is 
mostly shipping it to either Turkey or China and having it melted down again because it's just sold on the international scrap market um, versus avoiding the, um, the, the having to build new construction beams for the construction industry. So with that, you, you don't only have like a higher uh, gain for your products, but you also have a big difference in the impact that you cause. And that combined to uh, that added up to each other is the total value of then the, the product, which is the financial value uh, plus the environmental impact that you save. Mm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So thinking about all the different options for the next use of that material and how much intervention is going to be required to get it back into the system. That's often one of the criticisms about plastic recycling, isn't it? That there's so much energy goes into the separation of the different plastics and then the recovery back into something usable, um, that it can almost be as bad as um, you know using the petrochemical in the first place. No idea, and, and, and the most thing there is that you we don't currently know, right? So it's important to, to quantify what that information is, what that data is, and then let it help you in the decision-making process. Because maybe in some cases, it does make sense to recycle it, but in some cases, maybe it doesn't. And one of the things that we always wanted when we started this project is that we wanted to have our clients uh, give them the ability to base their decisions on financial metrics, so really the financial value of the matches that we identify for them, environmental, but also social. Mm. And the social piece is something that we started a pilot of this year with a company called Pre Consultants. And that's been a very interesting journey as well, where we found that expressing or measuring social impact is actually quite difficult. It's also quite new. Um, there's not a lot of established databases on that yet in the world. There are some, and, and uh, we use that for this pilot. They're working together with Pre. But also we find really important to help companies in the decision-making process, because sometimes something may have a very good financial business case and a good environmental business case, but then maybe the social aspect of it can be quite negative. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And I was doing a webinar yesterday and there was a, uh, a question about the circular economy for developing countries. And that can be one of the issues there that, um, you know, if we're sending recycle it abroad to be processed, we may not know whether it's being processed legally, safely, um, you know, is it exposing people to toxic chemicals, all that kind of stuff. So um, I guess it's the same with the, with the, um, the front end of your supply chain. If you don't know enough about who's involved and whether they're paying a fair wage, providing safe working conditions, all that kind of thing, then you're not really being a responsible company. No, absolutely. And, you know, you, you said it well, it all starts with measuring it and quantifying, but also presenting the information in a way that is useful for decision makers. And the social piece there is, is quite challenging. If you think about it, uh, for example, CO2 emissions, if you have uh, uh, 50 tons of CO2, everybody would agree with you that it's better than 100 tons. But when it comes to, um, let's say, social indicators, it's much more challenging. People always, you know, everybody would agree that having work versus no work is better. 
but working 16 hours a day is not great either. So it's much more difficult to express that in a meaningful way. Mm. And we're now, we just finished off a, a pilot with uh, Jay Consultants on the railroad tracks and on um, Orange Fields. So hopefully we'll be able to present something about that soon. I would also love actually for people to give feedback on that because this is something, just a tool that we use to make, to help in the decision-making process, but not something that we want to own per se. We just want to make matches that make sense. Mm. Yeah, and I guess it's similar to the way that um, the city of Amsterdam say they're going to be using the donut in their decision-making process, Kate Rayworth's donut e economics model, is it's not it's not going to necessarily be a way to um, lead them directly to a decision, but it's going to give them a checklist of all the things that they need to consider and try and weigh up. And sometimes, you know, if, if there's no perfect solution that meets the criteria of the inner foundation of the donut, the social foundation, and um, stays within all the, all the planetary boundaries, then you have to make choices, don't you, about whether option A is, is better than option B. Um, and it may not may not be clear cut some you know because because there aren't any or aren't enough perfect solutions out there you have to just make a compromise now and hope that you're able to improve that choice later absolutely it's always a trade off and i think and, and the trade off can only be made once the the data has been measured and presented and i guess Thinking about the evolution of some of the examples in the circular economy, we were talking before the podcast about the coffee supply chain, and um, I noticed in the in the video on your website there were a couple of examples that I'd not not come across, and so I added them to the fifteen or so that I've already got. But things are evolving all the time, aren't they? With new new innovations um, for turning waste apparently waste materials into a new resource or extracting value from biomaterials with through biorefining and green chemistry and all that sort of stuff so is one of the things that you can offer to your customers a sort of you know a regular revisit to see if there's now a better a better value um, option for their waste because of innovation or now there's a more local need for that particular material yeah no, absolutely basically if you if you flatten what we do it's a number of things we create economies of supply and economies of demand because we map resource flows and we always look out for companies that could use certain excess material flows or waste. And also because of that, by making those streams visible, all of a sudden it may become interesting for another company to invest a little bit more money on getting a certain uh, processing capability on the market so they can tap into the value that that data provides. And also what we do is that we build a fairly big database, now about 4,000 entries, in which we have mapped all the different recycling or reuse opportunities that there are around the globe, mostly focused on, on Europe. And we've also added to that database the technological readiness level. So this can also inform our clients on you know, what is already currently operational, that they can just more or less plug and play but also on things that are on the horizon and things that they may be able to plan for or maybe even invest in because they just want to give it a little nudge um, to get it ready for the market. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And yeah, in, in my own 
sort of, uh, I call it a database, but it's a spreadsheet really of 600 odd circular economy examples. That's one of the things I've done. If if somebody's just um, had a research breakthrough, but it's not yet commercialised, then I'll, you know, I'll note that it's at that stage rather than being a fully fledged um, up and running thing. And a lot of those, if you go back a couple of years later, have made it to market, but some of them may not have done. Um, so yeah, th things are just changing so quickly that um, you know it, it, it's got to be one of the underlying principles, hasn't it, for anybody involved in the circular economy is to is to keep looking at what's what's evolving outside to see if there's now a better solution than the one that you started off with. Well, absolutely, and and the way that we approach that is by building what they call a semantic web of the circular economy or a link database where we link the information from the passports that are in our database so looking at information like on a product level on a component level and on a material level but also on a functional level and then linking that to other databases that we have on recycling capacity recycling capability uh, other reuse options that there are for all sorts of materials and by connecting those and then laying those all on top of each other, you create what they call this semantic web. And that would help us to not only find matches much quicker, but also find much more relevant and maybe interesting matches. But of course, as this database grows and as we connect it with information on environmental impact and on social impact, it allows us to keep it sort of evergreen and, and keep our clients informed of what is going on and what the impact of their decisions is. So that's this is our hypothesis or maybe our hope or our dream that it will, you know, help our clients to stay abreast of what's going on, but also turn secondary materials or waste, we try to avoid the word waste, into almost a commodity, right? Where where it dissuades companies of going into very long term contracts with some of the uh, value chain partners that they may have. It's being like, well, maybe let's have a contract for one or two years because we feel like maybe in in three to four years, a new technology will be will come online that will be able to give this particular material flow much more value. Mm. Yeah, that's a good point. And it reminds me of um, somebody I knew who was working on circular economy solutions um, in in London at a um, you know city council level. And uh, they'd found found a company that could recycle mattresses really effectively. Um, and mattresses, as I'm sure you know, are kind of a you know major major problem. Um, but in talking to all the um, the different borough councils in London, they found that a lot of them had signed up 15 and 20 year contracts with um, you know mattress disposal experts that were just putting them into landfill. So they'd got a better solution, but couldn't make progress with it because everybody was tied into existing contracts that were just sending it to landfill or, or you know incinerating it we should avoid this lock in um, risk at all times i mean you mentioned the example of the mattresses i would say here in the netherlands there's been this surge of waste to energy plants where maybe you know 10 to 15 years ago it seemed like a great idea to incinerate waste and turn it into you know usable heat for cities and industries but now as we find that there are much more useful outlets for these waste streams, cities are having to um, finance these huge plants, huge capex heavy plants, where they're basically what we would call them these days, material um, 
incinerators, material places where materials come to die almost. Mm. But they have to be fed. So now they're importing waste streams from the UK, from Italy, from all over Europe to keep these uh, fires burning. I find this is insanity. Yeah, it's shocking, isn't it? And it reminds me of some a, a phrase another podcast guest, um, Tom Ogonek from uh, Close the Loop. His his phrase was, "When it's burnt, it's gone." <laughs> so that you oh, know, exactly. that's it. You've lost you've lost the material completely. And thinking about your your colleague um, Micah's TED talk when she um, you know talks about waste being gold. Um, you know, burning it and losing all that gold really makes you think that this is this is a really stupid idea um, to to just burn waste. So yeah, um, so in terms of the um, the time that you've that you've spent setting up excess materials exchange and and getting all this this clever technology up and running, uh, what surprised you in the process of doing all of that? Well, what I really liked about this process, or really like about the process, I have to say, is that the circular economy topic has created such a wonderful community of people that really want to make a difference. And I think, you know, when you're caught up in your day-to-day business and get frustrated by all the barriers, that's something to easily forget. But on the other hand, also something that really energizes us in the process. There's so many wonderful people doing so many great, innovative things to really help advance this agenda. And that's something that, even as I'm telling this to you now, gives me goosebumps, not lying. Yeah, I think it's, it, it is really energizing to find, um, you know, more and more people getting on board um, with the circular economy and with, with sustainability and finding that, you know, we, we can make a difference in lots of different ways. And it's just, a lot of it is just a new way of looking at things, um, you know, seeing seeing the value in waste instead of just thinking it's something we have to deal with and it, it costs us some money, but it's unavoidable. Now companies are realising that there's a different way of doing things. And I think for me, there's, there's kind of, um, you know, looking at your business differently and then from the citizen's point of view, looking differently at how we're marketed to. Um, you know, I see see a lot of things about consumer demand and, um, you know, what, what consumers uh, insist on. But people forget that that's all come from somebody persuading us that that was possible in the first place and that, it you know, it's desirable and that it's the best way to, um, you know, make yourself look good with your friends is to do X or buy Y. Um, and so... You know, un- unpicking the the business model from a systems point of view, thinking about where the value is going, what you're spending money on, and how could you change some of those value flows, and then also from the point of view of living in society, thinking about what we need to own, what we just need to have access to. You know, do we really need to? Is is this is buying all this stuff really making us feel better, or is it just somebody telling us that that? that's what it's going to do and and really it doesn't so yeah some some really interesting changes and i think um you know the the pandemic there's so many people saying things must change you know inevitably things must change but also there'll be a desire for people to from people to do things differently because they've had time to step back and question 
Um, you know, why were we buying all this stuff that we didn't need? Why, as we were talking before the podcast, why are we going into work every day um, when we could save ourselves the commute time and and um, and go for a walk? So yeah, um, so in terms of helping other people who might be inspired by going circular and wanting to make a difference what would be your lessons learned and top tip i mean i I love that question and a while ago there were a bunch of uh, students from a french university visiting us here in amsterdam and they asked us the very very question i had to think about it for a little and i told them i said i said and this may be a bit dark i said if i if I knew back then what I know now and all the barriers that we had to overcome and sort of that valley that we had to go through, I'm not sure if I would if I would do it. And you have to imagine, I came from a pretty comfortable corporate life and then, you know, dove straight into the deep end. I would say my tip is just to do it, take the step, um, take the dive. In the end, it's much more fulfilling, but you're going to face a lot of challenges. Uh, like I think... We thought that business would pick up much faster than it did, and my buffer sort of ran out. So we had a period of time where my diet was basically reduced to eating peanut butter sandwiches three times a day for a couple of week, weeks. And that was quite a, a sobering experience that I don't necessarily would like to repeat. But I think at the same time, though, it, this whole process and this whole journey has given me much more uh, fulfillment. So. Uh, definitely love that I did it, no regrets, but it's a tough journey. Yeah, that's a, a really, you know, insightful thing to share because I think often entrepreneurs and startups, you know, it's it, it, it can be tough and people can have to change direction partway through or find that it's too early for their idea in the world. It doesn't doesn't make it not a good idea. Um, but there's not enough enthusiasm for it or, um, you know, there's some some um, technological or even just a funding barrier in the way. Um, and, you know, just keeping plugging away and trying to find a different way around that problem, I guess, is what makes the difference between those who are, you know, driven to, to start something um, and, um, you know, those many of us who, who are... Uh, you know can kind of see good ideas but perhaps haven't got the um the drive and the tenacity um to just keep sticking sticking at it um even though you've got to survive on peanut butter sandwiches for for two weeks um you know hopefully not much longer because i guess i guess it wouldn't be all that good for you um your overall well-being um so in terms of um plans for the next phase of the business um how are you you know, are, are you still um, connecting with new customers despite the pandemic? Is Are you seeing more interest because people are having to take a, a step back from the day-to-day? Well, when the uh, COVID-19 pandemic hit, I was I was very worried, to be honest, uh, and also a bit frustrated because I thought, man, this, I thought this was really going to be our year. But then, and, and we have found that our revenues have, decrease so we do see that a lot of innovation and sustainability budgets have been frozen but at the same time we're still very busy so i'm very hopeful that we will weather this storm and like you said earlier 
there's a lot of voices now and, and, and a big undercurrent of people saying, you know, we want to do things different as soon as this crisis is over. And perhaps that's the break that we've been waiting for, because I feel like our tools and, and the knowledge that we build up and the experience that we have now can really help in manifest that desire. Because honestly, it's very in line with the desire that we had when we started this company. So of course, it's, it's horrible what's happening right now. And it is a challenge. But at the same time, I feel like, you know, this maybe is a sign for, for the world to do things differently. And I think here in Europe, we're very well positioned to make that happen. There's a lot of support from, from the European um, uh, European Union, but also on, on different national levels. There's a lot of a lot of uh, push and ambitions in this space. And I think, you know, I started off with saying that I felt like that the circular economy is one of the, the fastest and cheapest ways to reach the Paris Agreement uh, targets. And we find that a lot of our work actually supports that. And a lot of research coming out from a lot of other universities and institutes also supports that. So maybe this is that, uh, that event, that spark that will force the policymakers and maybe the big uh, corporates and companies as well to look at the circular economy and see it as a way to reduce their impact, not just on climate, but also on a lot of other factors, whilst not even having to lose any money, perhaps even make more money because it radically changes their business model. Yeah, exactly. I think there are just so many ways that value leaks out of a business all the way along the supply chain. Um, and so many innovations and research projects um, you know now finding ways to repurpose all that waste and and either recirculate it back in into the same thing for the company or find an industrial partner who can use that and um, you know those those people who've wanted to do something more sustainable but have been held back because they couldn't justify extra cost and now finding ways to to take those those good ideas back to the company and it's a much easier way to make a business case so i think um you know pe people are much more switched on to the fact that you can do something that's both sustainable and profitable um for the company so yeah hope hopefully the momentum um accelerates so christian is there anybody you'd recommend as a future guest for the program to help inspire people about the circular economy yeah, absolutely. Uh, one of the persons that I would recommend for this podcast is uh, Cecile van Oppen from Copper 8. They've been a great partner for us as well in uh, launching and developing our platform. And they're focused on uh, circular procurement. And obviously procurement is also a very important aspect of the transition towards a circular economy because a lot of uh, nations worldwide, but especially in Europe, the economy is for a large part controlled by government spending. So by, by helping decision makers spending their money in such a way that they are stimulating and advancing this agenda, I think is a, is a very important factor and important enabler in this transition. So we'd love it if she would come on onto this podcast. We'd definitely listen to that. Yeah, that would be great. And I think in every company, there's an opportunity to do circular procurement, even if your company is not interested in putting the circular economy at the heart of its strategy, you can just do things, um, you know, so much more effectively if you're asking your suppliers to provide services instead of taking ownership of products and, and um, you know, all those other good things. So that'll be great. I'll follow up on that.
And Christian, how can people find out more about you and about Access Materials Exchange? Well, they can get on to our website, accessmaterialsexchange.com, or email us at info at accessmaterialsexchange.com. That would be the easiest way to reach us. Definitely, it will give you a reply very quickly. Thank you, and I'll put those links in, in the show notes. Thank you very much for taking us through um, the story so far of Excess Materials Exchange. I think with the EU circular economy policy and the increase in, um, you know, it was, it's a hashtag at the moment, build, build back better. I think lots of companies will be looking at how they can be more resilient as a business and how they can rethink costs that they've accepted, um, you know, the cost of disposing of waste, costs they've accepted over the last um, so many years and looking at how they can turn that into value. So I, I, um, I see a bright future for Excess Materials Exchange and you and, uh, and all the other companies in that space. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk us through it. Thank you very much, Catherine. It was absolutely my pleasure. I was impressed by how Excess Materials Exchange offers a full service to its clients, hand-holding them through the entire process to help them with practicalities including logistics, dealing with legislation, sorting out commercial contracts and so on. The technology enables transparency of materials to provide assurance to the user, at the same time protecting sensitive information for the material supplier. I also like the way Excess Materials Exchange uses both artificial and real intelligence to find the best match. It's about more than the highest price for the material, so it can include location, social value, maybe even the alignment of values and potential to build partnerships and alliances. By using these broader definitions of value, going beyond financial benefits, Excess Materials Exchange helps clients evaluate different options and at the same time provides information for clients' sustainability and environmental and social governance reports. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one? Head over to rethinkglobal.info or buy my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook for Business and Supply Chains which takes you through the concepts and practicalities, including lots of real examples from around the world. You can find the podcast show notes with transcripts and links on rethinkglobal.info. Please let us know what you'd like us to feature on the podcast, and you can help other people find it by reviewing us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. You can get in touch via our website, rethinkglobal.info, or connect with me on LinkedIn. See you next time.